Oscar Romero. I don't know if that name means anything to anyone. Father Oscar Romero uh, has been in the news this week um, because Pope Francis, uh, that's a name that should mean something to most people, uh, he's a popular guy. Pope Francis has cleared the way this week for Oscar Romero uh, to become, uh, in the future, a saint. Cleared the way to his sainthood. Now, for those who don't know much about Oscar Romero, and I, I, I've got to be honest with you, uh, my knowledge about Oscar Romero is, is sort of right next to complete ignorance um, in that place known as Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, Romero, I'm reliably informed... Uh, became Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977, as El Salvador, which is the the country in which uh, San Salvador is, was in turmoil over uh, essentially what what began it was an unjust election, a seizing of power. Now he became incredibly vocal in that whole period, but particularly vocal as the violence ramped up. Uh, There was a whole host of... um, kidnappings and violent murders and the more that this stuff happened the more Oscar Romero spoke out and used his platform as a priest to speak out against injustice and against violence denouncing the killings and the kidnappings and uh, denouncing therefore the government this was an incredibly uh, courageous step from an incredibly courageous man Now, on March 23rd in 1980, he delivered what was probably, up to that point, his most direct sermon yet. And and if you were sort of going to summarise Oscar Romero's teaching, and I I, I lean here to Miles, who's read a fair bit of it, but if you were going to summarise Oscar Romero, Father Oscar Romero's teaching, really you you could say that at the heart of it was uh, a word, uh, a phrase, stop turn around, or to put it in biblical language, repent. His message was a warning. It was a prophetic statement. It was a man, a bold and courageous man, drawing a line in the sand and saying, no further, this cannot carry on. Repent. Stop the violence. He was speaking truth to power in the only way he could, in the only way he knew how. Now the next day, on March the 24th in 1980, he finished, he had finished his homily, he had finished his sermon. And as he was walking uh, from wherever he was preaching his sermon to uh, the the altar, the table where he was preside over the Eucharist, uh, a man uh, parked up or or was driven up um, outside uh, the church. He, He walked down the central aisle towards the altar and he shot Romero dead. And Romero, Oscar Romero, died by the altar. His blood spilled out on the ground. One commentator who I read this week said this of Romero. He not only talked the talk, he also walked the walk. Integrity. That's what integrity is, isn't it? That our words and our our lives, our very identity would be joined. That there would be no division between what we say and how we live. Another man who lived with that integrity was Jesus Christ. And we uh, at Trinity over the next uh, few weeks are trying to get at the heart of this question. As we look at lots of different things, we're looking at what is the church, we're looking at who's the Holy Spirit, we're looking at uh, how can I have faith, who is, you know, really the question, as we look at all these questions, is this central question, who is Jesus and should I care? 
And we don't assume here that any of you necessarily um, come from any different any particular perspective. We know that across this room, uh, just as across this city, there'll be people who come from any number of different uh, points of view on that question. Some will come as uh, full, card-carrying Jesus freaks. I'm looking out and I'm seeing one or two freaks in front of me right now. Amen. Some of you might not be even anywhere near joining the bus. You may be uh, looking at the bus from a distance, trying to figure out where exactly it's headed and whether you would ever want to get on a bus as crazy as this one. But wherever you are, wherever we stand or sit in your case, and in my case, this question is the central question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the question we want to get at. And we can't get at that question without asking this question. What was his message? A man with this integrity, his message needs to be interrogated. Now here's the problem we face. The first and most fundamental problem is that we misunderstand his message. We misunderstand his message. Both within the church, his message is misunderstood and also outside of the church. There's a lack of clarity on who he said he was and what he said he was about. Some people say, Jesus is just a great moral teacher. Someone like Gandhi, who comes to give us advice on how we can be better people. Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what the church is all about? Teaching us how to be better people. Teaching us how to do better and think better and speak better and act better. So we can go out shiny-faced, smiling into the world. And people will see our shiny faces and join us wherever we are. Maybe Jesus has more to say than that. Or maybe Jesus is a, a, a freedom-fighting revolutioner like Che Guevara. Come to uh, bring a revolution, a powerful political overthrowing. Maybe he's just a prophet as Islam teaches. Maybe he's a spiritual guru. A bit of Bikram yoga in the morning. A bit of Jesus in the afternoon or maybe the evening. Maybe he's somebody showing us how to get to heaven when we die. Floating on clouds out in the sky, he stands with a harp, ready to welcome us into eternal bliss. But none of this gets at the core of who Jesus is claimed to be, who Jesus said that he was. And in fact, the core of what his message was. Yes, Jesus teaches a new way to live. Indeed, he teaches a whole new way to be human. But his message isn't advice. It's news. It is an announcement. Jesus is not a freedom fighter. And if he is, he's a failed one. He's nailed to the cross crucified by the very people he was intended, so we think, to overthrow. Jesus, yes, is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. And no, Jesus is not telling us. His, his fundamental message is not a message about how we can get to heaven after we're dead. Jesus claimed something far more radical than that. He claimed to be bringing heaven to us here and now. But what the heck does that mean? How do we get our, our arms, our heads, our hearts around that truth? Well, in order, I, that is the question, by the way. That's the question I want to ask tonight and hopefully propose an answer. We'll see how we go with that. What does it mean 
that Jesus offers as heaven here and now. Here's what I want to do. To get a better handle on that, to begin to hopefully propose an answer to that, we're going to have to look at a little bit of history. Who's up for a history lesson? Oh, yeah. The blackboard. My assistant now brings the blackboard out, and I've got some chalk, and we're going back to Tudor times. Tudor times and sort of Second World War history were all I remember from school. We're going a bit earlier than that. And I want to begin with Jesus context because if we're going to get at the heart of his message we need to understand the world in which his message was shaped in which his message emerged and that world was uh, was Palestine in the first century and, and what we need to understand about the, the the people group of which Jesus was a part the Jewish people was that uh, 60 years before Jesus even showed up the nation of Israel was uh, attacked was um, taken possession of, if you like, by the Roman Empire. The Romans wandered into Israel and took power in Jerusalem. And they installed a puppet king, somebody called Herod the Great. Now, if you've ever been to church in and around Christmas, you've heard the name Herod. And, you know, really now you should be booing and hissing. Because, can I hear a boo and a hiss? Or a... Excellent. Very good. We're still awake. Coffee's available there for those who are nodding off. <laughs> Herod was, was seen by uh, the people of God, by the Israelites, by the Jewish people as being incredibly bad news. He was just a puppet, a figure of Roman oppression installed in the, uh, in, in the palace. But he really had nothing to do with the heart of God's people. He wasn't the king that they wanted. In fact, the whole point really was that God's people wanted freedom from his tyranny. They wanted to see him overthrown and with him the Romans who stood behind his power. You see, their understanding that the Jewish people carried was we already have a king and his name is Yahweh. And we want him, not Herod. We want to be governed and ruled by him and under him and live with him and him alone. We want William Wallace, freedom, <laughs> except perhaps not in that accent. <laughs> the Jewish people believed they already had their own king. They already had a God and they awaited the moment where they could live fully and freely under his government. And there was this belief, this core conviction, this prophetic longing that one day God would himself send a king and his name would be Messiah. Now a couple of weeks ago, no it was actually last week, seven days ago, uh, we asked who is Jesus and we looked at the early part of Matthew's gospel, indeed as we've done tonight. But we looked at Matthew chapter one and, and what we saw is uh, we looked at two titles that Jesus has given. The first is his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means salvation or rescue. It's just this, this name that says that Jesus is all about bringing life in a world uh, of death. And then we looked at the second word, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, those of you who are more observant or indeed who were awake may have seen that in the reading of Matthew's Gospel, there was a third name that I completely omitted. Now, I did it on purpose. And that third name is Messiah. It's the name we see here. And it literally means anointed one. See, what would happen is that Duncan... This is a kingly name and a kingly man. If I were to, in, in, in Jewish understanding, if I was to prepare Duncan to be a king, uh, what I would do as a, uh, let's say I was in the Old Testament, I might be somebody like Samuel, and I was about to prepare him, what I would do is bring with me a flask of oil. 
And as a symbol and as a sign of preparation, some of you are looking incredulous, I'm about to anoint Duncan King. I'm not about to do this. This is just symbolic. It's really just, do it. Okay, here we go. Uh, let's get the oil out. No, I would, I would break open, I would pour oil on Duncan's head as a symbol and as a sign, more than a sign. As a, an inbreaking reality, a, a set, I would set him apart for kingship. And the oil would be a sign and a symbol of God's presence and God's calling upon his life. That's what it mean to, meant to be anointed. And so the king, the one who was anointed by God, was therefore the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, the Jewish people weren't waiting for many messiahs. There was one messiah that they were awaiting. And, and this messiah would overthrow Herod, overthrow Rome, overthrow any nation who was keeping Israel under oppression. But it wasn't just a, a local story, storyline. There was also this bigger picture, this global storyline going on as well. And that goes back to what we were saying last week as well about the, the Hebrew understanding in the Old Testament. And again, stick with me here, I know this is pretty detailed. But the Hebrew understanding in the Old Testament was that the whole earth had been created by God. And not just the earth, the heavens and the earth. In other words, for us, the universe. All reality was created by God and therefore was somehow under his stewardship and under his control. It was his to do with as he pleased. Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That was the Hebrew understanding. And yet they also understood that stuff was happening in the world that wasn't in accordance with God's holy will. Stuff was going wrong, as I said, quoting Bob Dylan last, last week. Ain't no use jiving, no use joking. Everything is broken. I do know other Bob Dylan songs, but that's the one that keeps coming to mind. There was this picture that the world isn't right. And the Israelites were waiting for somebody to be sent by God who would put everything to rights. A king who would come and make all wrongs right. And again, this king was Messiah. Messiah, Zechariah 14.9. We may have this on the screen. This is just a picture of this hope, of this longing that the Jewish people carried with them. I don't know if we have that, Esther. We don't have that. I better find it then. This is going to be awkward if I can't find it. What do they call this? A sword drill? There we go. Come on, Zechariah. I want you. I'm, gonna, I'm coming for you. <laughs> the, hey! Praise God. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. You see that? This isn't just about Israel. This is about the whole earth. Give Esther a raise. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Okay, what have we heard? Messiah. Israel, the Jewish people, God's people were waiting for Messiah. And there's two storylines here. He was going to come and make the wrong things right for Israel, but it wasn't just for Israel. It was for the whole world. The picture was that all people being brought under his kind governance. All chaos made right. So... What were people to do? And how does that have anything to do with Jesus' message? Here we go. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 17. From that time on. and it, In other words, that's the time that John has been put in prison. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent. Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the same message Oscar Romero carried. Repent, stop. It's the same message that John carried, John the Baptist, the figure preparing the way for Jesus. The same message, repent. That's the message. Repent, why? Repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. Now, repent is a loaded term. And I know as I use that word, different ones of us will be seeing different things in our minds. Some of us will be thinking about crawling over broken glass on our hands and knees. Surely that's what repentance is about. Saying we're really, really sorry a million times to the person that we love until they forgive us. But actually repentance is much bigger than that. Repentance is more than just being really, really sorry. Repentance is far greater than just confession, although it includes confession. What repentance has to do with is a complete change of mind. Indeed, a complete change of direction. If I was to walk in this direction, which as you'll see I'm about to do, and I was to repent, it would mean to take an about turn to completely change not just my mind but my direction. But it's much more potent than that. It has to do with a new way of living. To repent is to live in a different way. It's not about being really sorry. It's not about being just really sorry. It's not about even feeling, making yourself feeling really guilty. To repent is to change. It's, it's to be given a chance of a new life. It's to be given the gift of a new life. Repentance isn't about doing it all. Primarily, it's about receiving something. And then, because we've received something, being enabled to do something different. It's not about striving, it's about receiving, it's about being given a gift. Repentance, it, it carries this sense of warning, but it's much richer than that. It's about a change of direction. I guess the word that we might use today is to, is to be converted, to, to receive a conversion, to be converted. It's about retracing our steps. I know some of you have heard this story, but... After university, I, throughout my time at university, I, I got, um, in many, many different ways, very lost. I think principally it was because um, I'd sort of run out of uh, hope, primarily. I think I, for, for lots of reasons, and I won't, this isn't a corporate counselling session. <laughs> I do realise that. I'll keep this brief. <laughs> um, Though sometimes it's tempting to use it in that way. Uh, for lots of reasons, I think I'd just run out of hope. I, I, was, I was low, very low. I know Emma talked about that herself. Uh, but I, at university, I experienced a, a long period of being depressed. Just getting out of bed was very difficult. And just, I, th I think, honestly, I'd lost a sense of who I was, a sense of myself, of why I was, what, what I was all about. Uh, a lot of that probably had to do with uh, stuff going on in my life much broader than that. But... Uh, I'd come uh, to the end of myself. And my, my solution to that was to seek pleasure. That's what I sort of did to medicate that feeling of just um, emptiness, really, was probably be how I'd describe it. Um, and so uh, I pursued that in all manner of ways. I'll leave the details for now. And I came out of university that season of my life lost. And I ended up on the doorstep of a church. And the reason is, is because I moved to a new city and the only people I knew were Christians. 
And I thought, well, I don't know anyone in the city apart from these people. So I'll, I'll go where they go. I'll start hanging out with them. And, and I arrived in this church in London and just experienced the most extraordinary welcome. I felt like I was coming home. And that began a journey for me, uh, that, of really a journey of retracing my steps. I like that phrase to talk about repentance. That's what repentance is. Uh, and there's a picture in the Bible and Luke's gospel. It's another one of the biographies about Jesus. And, and, and in this picture, in this story that Jesus tells, there's two sons and one of them is a younger son. And he asks for his father's inheritance, which is as good as asking for his father to be dead. And he takes the inheritance and he spends it in a far country, uh, all manner of things that he gets up to. And he comes to a point of utter uh, lostness and he's fumbling around in the darkness looking for food and he, all he can find is uh, the pods that the pigs would have eaten and he's at the lowest point in his life and in that moment he said he, the, the, it says in Luke 15 he came to his senses or literally he returned to himself to return to yourself to return to God that's what it means to repent this message is therefore an opportunity it's news it's good news. Repentance is good news. But it's also a warning. It is a warning. Now, I did what any self-respecting preacher does uh, in the week leading up to, to this sermon. I googled uh, warnings that were not heeded on the internet. And uh, I, <laughs> I heard actually through that two really interesting stories. Firstly, Mount Vesuvius and, and, and the city of Pompeii. Anybody? Another story about Pompeii. Apparently, August 24th in AD 79. It's actually just after. or In and around the time the New Testament was being written. Uh, Mount Vesuvius, which is a, a, mount, a, a, a mountain, of course, but a volcano. That's the kind of mountain it was. Which had been dormant for a long time. Just exploded and completely destroyed the, the town or the city of Pompeii. Killing many people. That whole civilization was destroyed. Here's the interesting thing about it. The tragic thing about it is there were signs all along, but nobody could interpret the signs. The water uh, by the bay was bubbling. It was that hot, but nobody understood what it meant. And so they were all destroyed. There was another story about the RMS Lusitania. Now, some of you, none of you were alive for this. This is World War I. But this is a ship that was sunk uh, by a German... Um, a submarine off the coast of Britain. And what was fascinating, I'd heard about this, but I didn't know the detail. And the detail is, is that in the two weeks preceding the sinking of this ship, in fact, in the two weeks preceding the launching of this ship from New York back to Britain, the German government took out several adverts in the New York Times warning people not to get on the boat. Warning that if they left, surely this ship would be sunk. The day, the day of departure, a warning was printed next to uh, the advertisement about the ship's departure. And yet the ship sailed and the ship was sunk and over a thousand people were killed. This message that Jesus gives is an opportunity and it is also a warning. It is a warning for those who would hear it. Why does Jesus call people to repent? Here's why. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And there's the good news. And here is another area where we just misunderstand. We lose track of what Jesus is going on about. Because as soon as the word heaven is spoken, I see you. 
You're glazing over. You're thinking of a man, a bearded man in the sky. And there is a harp and there are angels all with many, many wings. And there's floating and there's music and it happens eternally. And you believe that this is what Jesus is offering. This is what heaven is all about. And it couldn't be further from the truth. That's not the biblical picture of heaven. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near or the kingdom of heaven is available or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he does not have a vision, a disembodied bliss in which harps are being played and people are floating. This isn't some future by and by uh, statement about what will one day be. Jesus is saying God's reality, God's presence, God's imagined uh, future has broken into the present. And God's very reality, God's very self, God himself is here. God's kingdom is available. And the word, of, uh, the word available, uh, it's, it's in the perfect tense. It means it, it has come near. It's already happened. It's not, hey, hang on, hang out with me and in a while you're going to see some cool stuff. No, Jesus is saying right here, right now. In fact, already God is with us. What does it mean for the king? What is, what is the kingdom of God? If it's not floating around, what actually is it? Well, it's not actually a space or a place at all. The kingdom of God is, is what it looks like when God gets his say. The kingdom of God is what it looks like when God is in charge. So what Jesus is saying is, I have come as Messiah, as God's rightful king, and I've come to take the power back. I've come to take the power back from all those who act unjustly. I've come to take the power back for, for all of those who are crushed and quashed by sickness, by darkness, by death, by a brokenness. I've come to liberate people who have been abused, people who have been overlooked, people who are overcome with grief, people who are squashed by depression and oppression and anxiety. Jesus says, I've come to bring life. That's what the kingdom is all about. And so Jesus doesn't just talk the talk. Jesus is like Romero, but a million times more than Romero, he walks the walk. And so we see in Matthew's gospel, from this moment on, Jesus demonstrates what the kingdom of God looks like. And what it looks like is the calling of disciples. It looks like the creation of a community. The kingdom means a community, a blood and flesh community. We know that community today as the church. And do you know this? You can belong in that community. There is a place for you, for every one of you in that community, in this community, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever you've done, you are welcome. You belong. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. Broken people like Simon who becomes Peter. Broken people like Andrew, like James, like John, like Martha, like Mary. Like me, like you. Broken people get to belong. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Broken people don't just belong. Broken people get a new purpose. Jesus says, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And you're thinking, I don't like fishing. It's, it's sitting down for a long time doing nothing. Don't worry, folks, it's a metaphor. That's what Jesus is saying. You can have a purpose. And he's, what he's actually saying is, whatever it is you've done, whatever it is you do, I can repurpose it. 
I can make what you do something for me. Your broken life, I can turn it around. I can find, I can give hope within it. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is lost. Whatever you've been doing, it's not irredeemable. It's a message of grace and of acceptance. That's what the first thing Jesus does. He forms a people. The second thing he does is demonstrate his kingdom through signs and wonders. Jesus, verse 23 of chapter 4, went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. It's about the inbreaking kingdom demonstrated, manifested through signs of new life. Just imagine it. Oh, my days. Imagine a church service in which something exciting like that happened. Don't we want that? Don't we want his kingdom? Honestly, what we come up with is is rubbish compared with that. Don't we want people coming home to God? Don't we want people receiving new life? Don't we want... Unjust structures being overturned. Don't we want homeless people finding homes? Broken people finding families? Prisoners finding purpose? It's the kingdom. Don't we want blind people seeing? Both physically and spiritually blind people seeing. This is what Jesus does. Signs of the kingdom, signs of healing, signs of justice. And there's a new ethic of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom is the kind of place in which the poor in spirit are blessed. It's the kind of place in which mourners are comforted, meek inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled. The merciful receive mercy. The pure in heart see God. The peacemakers are called children of God. And those who are persecuted For righteousness' sake, receive God's kingdom. Even the insulted are given grace in the kingdom. It's the kind of kingdom in which people are given the grace to behave and respond differently. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. It's a place of grace. It's a a sign to the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill. There's a new ethic of the kingdom and there is the ultimate sign of the kingdom, a crucified king. You see, this, folks, is a strange kingdom. It's a strange kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. Because of the pinnacle of this kingdom is a crucified man. Somebody who knows what it is to be a broken person. Somebody whose own body was broken so that broken people like you and I can be whole, can be healed, can be welcomed, can be loved. It's a strange kind of king, inaugurating a strange kind of kingdom. This kingdom comes in a strange way, on the cross. So, what does it mean to be a people of this strange king? How can we, you might not like the sound of this, if you do, How can you play your part? How can you belong? How can you join in? What Jesus says is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That means order your whole life around this reality. 
Choose to make this the fulcrum, the center, the cornerstone. Not this as in this teaching, this as in this man, the king, the cornerstone of your life. Base your house on this solid rock. And here's why. This man is giving, offering a better story, a bigger picture, a more compelling, a richer life than any other life imaginable. This is better than the lifestyle that John Lewis offers you. It is. And I know you've seen that sofa. It's much better. This is better than the life that can be offered at the bottom of the bottle. This is better. This Jesus is better than anything else around. So what do we do? We, we repent. That means we reorder. We ask him to help us reorder our lives around his own identity, around who he is. We seek not prosperity, but Jesus. It means submitting and surrendering to him. Ultimately, it's about surrender. His Surrender to his agenda above our own agenda for life. Surrender to his identity, to who he says he is. And on the back of that, to receive the life that he offers. The hope that he offers, the joy that he offers, the peace that he offers. As we give him our all, we receive all of him. And that means hope. Why don't we stand?